Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. After much dithering, Boris Johnson finally delays Freedom Day. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Today, I cannot say that we have met all our four tests for proceeding with step four on June the 21st. I think it is sensible to wait just a little longer. On Monday, the Prime Minister announced what many in England had feared. There will be a four-week delay to the lifting of all coronavirus restrictions. Boris Johnson and ministers doing the media rounds were quick to insist that instead, the 19th of July will be the terminus date. But with the hospitality industry left disappointed again and some Tory MPs threatening revolt, just how damaging is this latest missed deadline for the government? That same evening, though, the government was keen to shift the attention to the free trade deal struck with Australia over dinner. Boris Johnson hailed it as a historic post-Brexit deal, saying it shows global Britain at its best. But does it really? Plus... Following a week of politicians wading into rows over the Queen's portrait and the England football team taking the knee, many are wondering, what is the game plan for Tory MPs who look to be fanning the flames of the culture wars? And how can Labour, and us in the media, respond? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, for a roundup of another eventful week in Westminster, I'm joined by The Guardian columnist Martin Kettle. Martin, it's always lovely to have you on. And in previous weeks, we've been basically predicting this delay to the government's roadmap out of lockdown. And it's been confirmed now, the worst kept secret in Westminster. Four more weeks of restrictions, although unless you're you know, in the hospitality business or, or in a, a small number of other businesses, it's probably not going to materially affect your life in a huge way. How about you? Did you have any plans ruined by this delay? Not by this delay, Jess. Uh, I was hoping to get to Portugal uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then that was kiboshed at the 11th hour, but there we are. So, no, I'm fine for the next four weeks. I'm available for the podcast and other services. Excellent. Boris Johnson has now pretty much promised, you know, barring there being some terrible Omega variant, of which is yet unknown, that the new date set, the 19th of July, won't be delayed it's going to be the moment when, when all restrictions are relaxed. I mean, we're not 100% exactly what that means. Um, do you think it's wise to be that certain? Well, I mean, all the experience of the pandemic suggests that it's unwise, doesn't it? Because 
you know, on several occasions they've called it wrongly about the timing and when restrictions will be needed or it can be lessened. They've made several mistakes on that front. And indeed, you know, keeping the, these restrictions in place for another four weeks is obviously a further sign of that. So, I mean, I think he's just trying to give a message that he knows what he's doing. In, in reality, I think a majority of people and most of the political parties do seem to agree that this is a necessary pause. So I think the, the political stakes here aren't too great. But I think, as ever, he's quite likely to have to uh, amend what he's said uh, at some point down the road. There are things to interrogate, I guess, doesn't it? Yes. What it, what it means about all restrictions will lift because some leaked documents today seem to suggest that the advice to work from home won't ever really formally be lifted. You know, people will be eventually urged to make their own judgment, but no one, the government shouldn't, shouldn't urge people back to the office. There's also obviously this uh, test and trace is going to continue to operate. People who've had two vaccinations could still be made to quarantine for a significant period of time, that which they might feel rightly or wrongly is pointless. There are things that could linger, aren't there? Even if technically this, this 19th of July is supposed to be the end of you know, business closures, etc. Absolutely. And of course, the other thing that's happened just uh, recently is this confirmation, which we may come on to later. I mean, that there will be compulsory vaccination for care workers and potentially in other sectors too, notably the NHS. So, you know, I think quite a lot of this will still be around in the autumn, whether or not it's uh, a regulation. Let's talk briefly about compulsory vaccinations. The Prime Minister seems to have firmly come down on the side of compulsory vaccinations, not just for care home staff, but also potentially for NHS workers. He he was, we remember, I think, firmly in favour of, of vaccine passports or COVID certification, as he used to call it, which now seems to have been ditched. So perhaps his opinions do do change quite a lot, this Prime Minister's. But um, what what do you make of it? And do you think there will be a significant backlash and, and maybe also other employers trying to impose this kind of thing? The last of those questions is a very good question. I think that, um, you know, how far the government is going to sanction employers uh, taking this kind of initiative is something I don't know the answer to, but it's an important question. I think part of the problem is they haven't made a long-term push for persuasion to get vaccinated other than saying you know you can get vaccinated and and it's a, it's all being a tremendous success the government hasn't sort of taken the argument with anti-vax campaigners or or skeptics or people who are concerned in a, in a more moderate way into the arena and they've been quite reluctant to have that uh, argument uh, in public I also think that you know this thing of no jab no job is actually a really tricky question for every party. It's not just the Conservatives who will find it a bit difficult to swallow for their kind of deregulatory uh, instincts, because obviously Labour with its um, union and workforce connections and the other parties which have tended to be in favour of more uh, stringent restrictions rather than less. You know, these are going to be difficult questions for them to sort out too. So I think at the centre, if you like, in politics, I think it will, I think it will pass. I think we're probably safe to talk about this, given that we pretty much know the way the vote's going to go this afternoon. Backbenchers might rebel in moderate numbers against this extension of restrictions, uh, but Labour are going to back it, so it should pass pretty comfortably. 
One of the things that, that a few Tory MPs have said to me, which I, I wanted to sort of get your take on, Martin, they say, you know, if you have to keep these restrictions in in the height of summer when cases are, relatively speaking, low, even though we're, we're you know, approaching some of the highest in Europe now, what's it going to be like in, in the winter when cases will inevitably go up? They're asking the government to say, what, what is the acceptable number of people who will sadly die from this virus? Do you think the government need to spell that out? I don't think, I mean, I think there are ways and ways of addressing the question, aren't there, by politicians. I mean, you don't necessarily have to say this is an acceptable number of deaths, this is an unacceptable number of deaths. But you do say something of the kind of, that Witty has said, I mean, I think he's sort of been pretty consistent on this, that it is about living with the problem, just as we live with other risks in our lives. I, I think handling it politically could be done in a much more straightforward way by you know explaining the balances of these questions this is something that some politicians in this country are quite good at doing i mean i think mark drakeford in wales is very good at doing that nicola sturgeon's quite good at doing it too and and indeed uh, when she was first minister in northern ireland so was arlene foster boris johnson does have a problem because it doesn't quite fit with his you know enthusiasm approach but i don't think it really is going to be difficult to make that case. I think the, those Tory MPs, I mean, do have a point. They may express it in ways that progressives may bridle at, but actually, you know, there's a real issue here about how long all activity is is to be shaped by these rules. Because although there's a lot of nonsense rhetoric about freedom, and I really dislike this Freedom Day phrase, I, br- I bridle at it, nevertheless, freedom is quite important. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we we want to make decisions about our own lives, but clearly you've got to get the figures under control first, and that's the challenge. What about Labour's position on this? I mean, they're they're backing it. We'd expect them to back it. It's annoying for Keir Starmer that he has to keep backing the government and the attack line that they've come up with, which they hope will resonate, is that this delay is the government's fault because they failed to shut the border for two weeks to India, they say, and Downing Street deny, but, you know... That was because of the the Prime Minister's intended visit to India and the Delta strain has since taken hold. You know, Keir Starmer's blaming that incompetence, slow decision making. Does that stick? I think it's a good argument. I'm not sure it's going to cut much ice at the moment, simply because I think people have kind of made up their mind which side of these debates they're on. It's tricky for Labour. I actually think that Labour should be looking to take a few more risks on this and uh, should be trying to find ways in which it is forcing an argument on something that's going to happen or might be going to happen in the future rather than about what happened in the past. I think the real question for Labour is why do they not just say, let's get back to work, put the country back to work? And I think that would be that's increasingly where they're going to have to be in in this argument. But it's difficult for Labour. We all know it's difficult. And we should mention as well that in Scotland, as Nicola Sturgeon is talking about a delay too, that would roughly bring at least a lot of Scotland in line with the English reopening, Wales as well, Northern Ireland slightly different. Do you think it's beneficial to have a kind of joined up, you know, dates wise when it comes to lifting restrictions across the UK? 
Well, I think it's very interesting that Nicola Sturgeon has, in the end, come down with a policy which, in the end, is basically the same policy as uh, the UK government is uh, implementing in England. Uh, that's not where she likes to be, and she certainly would not like to be out-cautious by Johnson, who she casts all the time as, as reckless and a bit irresponsible. And uh, so the, the, the net result is, is the same thing, which is a little bit frustrating, I think, for the SNP, who always want to create a division between the way things are happening in England and the way things are happening in Scotland. But of course, the reality is that this pandemic has hit Scotland in very similar ways to England and uh, and to Wales. If there's a government that's handled it better than any of the others, I suspect it's the Welsh government rather than the Scottish government. But because Sturgeon is such a, a good, you know, she's a very good tribune for her cause, uh, she's got a lot of uh, support, which was shown at the ballot box um, a month or two ago. I want to talk very briefly about this Australia trade deal, which was um, announced by jubilant Boris Johnson yesterday and, you know, heralded by Liz Truss. This trade deal is symbolic, isn't it? Even if we think it's not going to make any huge amount of difference to British consumers and and might actually be quite damaging to farmers. You know, making a judgment about the Australian trade deal is, is a slightly delicate issue because actually the UK's trade with Australia is such a minuscule amount in proportion to the the, the total of foreign trade that uh, the UK does. So it's not, whatever happens, it's not going to affect very much. And of course, the second thing to say is that most of what's in the Australia trade deal is what they already had through the EU anyway. Um, having said that, there are some sectors, and of course, agriculture and uh, and farming is um, the most obvious one, where, you know, where there are real conflicts. And not for the first time, the government has said one thing to farmers and uh, ended up doing something else. So where's the surprise? That's a big surprise, isn't it? I know, who'd have thought it? Finally, last thing to touch on, it's the Chesham and Amersham by-election tomorrow. And it's got a big, big, big Tory majority and you'd expect the Tories to win it. But the Lib Dems are challenging a bit, aren't they? And um, these kind of seats are a bit interesting, aren't they, Martin? Because... They're areas where the demographics are kind of moving away from the Conservatives' favour as, as younger people move out of, of London or bigger cities. There are places also where Labour are hoping to capitalise, although it's the Lib Dems challenging here. What do you make of, of tomorrow's election? Well, I think it would be a big surprise if uh, Chesham and Amersham did not return a Conservative, because that's what it does. On the other hand, as you say, uh, there is a... The Lib Dems are fighting a high-profile campaign in the constituency. Labour has not been um, busting a gut, I think one could say. Uh, it's much more focused on the Batley and Spen by-election in, in a couple of weeks. Now, as far as Chesham and Amersham is concerned, you know there is this huge local issue of HS2 where any sort of protest against HS2 locally might take the form of uh, switching votes. You know, we, we, I, I think it's not, doesn't feel like it's going to happen. I, I would guess that, you know, you'll probably have something like, you know, 45% Tory vote and a 35% Lib Dem vote. So it'll be a, a decreased majority. It'll give encouragement to the Lib Dems because they will want to be the principal party of opposition in Tory-held seats in the south uh, of England. And um, I, I 
expect to see this very, very tall Conservative, who's six foot nine, isn't he, come back as probably the tallest uh, MP uh, for many years. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you ever so much, Martin. Pleasure to have you on as always. Thank you. After the break, why do politicians get involved in the culture wars? We'll be right back. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, in an article published on Tuesday, Boris Johnson's former race advisor, Samuel Kasimou, told The Guardian's Amna Modine that he feared another Stephen Lawrence or Joe Cox tragedy if members of the government continued to inflame the culture wars. Joe Cox, the MP for Batley and Spen, was murdered five years ago by a far-right supporter. Worrying that some people have already forgotten this horrific crime, Kasimou said, quote, There are some people in the government who feel that the right way to win is to pick a fight on the culture war and to exploit division. In recent weeks, several ministers have been accused of stoking these kinds of wars over footballers taking a knee, paintings of the Queen and past offensive remarks by an England cricketer. Perennial as they are, the curious culture wars seem back in the national discourse. But why now? And why are Conservative MPs so keen to get involved? The Guardian's political correspondent Peter Walker takes a look. I'm very, very kindly joined by Katie Balls, who is the Spectator's deputy political editor, and Sonia uh, Soda, who is chief leader writer at The Observer. And we're here to talk about the culture wars. Um, I was listening to Keir Starmer's regular LBC phone-in, and pretty much every single question, both you know, from the DJ and also from the people calling in, was kind of connected to culture wars. It was about the Queen's portrait. It was about footballers taking the knee and stuff like that. So I want to ask both of you, I mean, how do we get to this point? Katie, is it just the government is pushing it or are we just in this weird cultural time when everyone's interested in these sorts of things? I think it's a combination. I think that we've seen when it comes to issues, you know, talking about statues, it's the type of thing that will quickly uh, take over Twitter or social media. And that will be the thing that people are discussing all day. And then you'll hear, well, Twitter doesn't represent the country, but there are definitely enough politicians on both sides of the spectrum. I think the Tory party and also in Labour who think this thing does matter and it links to, I suppose, identity and therefore is something which is a live issue that they think voters do care about. 
And it's very interesting. There's been analysis done by Professor Tim Bale at Queen Mary University, London, which looks at how aligned the 2019 switches from Labour to the Conservatives are to both of the parties. And for the Conservatives, those switches are far more aligned to Conservative MPs' values and Conservative members' values on social issues. So they're more socially conservative, like the Conservatives. But they are actually much more aligned to Labour on economic issues. So they tend to fall on the left of the spectrum economically. So I think this is part of a strategy by number 10 and by Downing Street, at least some in number 10, where they think actually holding the debate on these very divisive issues, which actually, quite frankly, you know, not everyone cares about to the extent that it might appear from the way they dominate the media. But they feel like keeping the political debate focused on very divisive issues actually may help them keep some of those voters. And I think that's what has shifted. And that's why we're seeing these issues covered even more in the last couple of years. So Katie, it strikes me as a quite an interesting thing, because this is almost kind of going back to slightly old fashioned conservative stuff. Because, you know, if you could look back at what might have been called culture wars in the past, you had things like Section 28, you had John Major slightly ill-fated back to basics. But then you had David Cameron trying to kind of detoxify the brand with equal marriage and things like that. Do you get the sense from talking to Conservative uh, MPs and ministers that they really think this is a kind of vote winner? And also, do you think their heart's really in it? Do you think many of the leading Conservatives actually believe in this? When it comes to the Parliamentary Party, I think that if you look at the new intake, so the 2019 intake, I think there are lots of Tory MPs who won red wall seats, as they're now known, uh, from Labour. And I think they think that actually cultural issues play very well to their new voters. Then I think you get to the cabinet, however, and I think people are quite split. So I think there are some ministers who are a bit wary about it. I think there's also, it just in the parliamentary party, if you think probably more traditional Tory seats, shire Tories, I think that if you think of some of the remaining Cameroons or even MPs newer, but who saw David Cameron as a moderniser, they are uncomfortable about focusing too much on these issues. I think particularly on things like trans rights, um, they question whether, you know, how hard a line the government should be taking. Is the government playing with fire? And I think where Boris Johnson comes in is actually, for a long time at least, he's almost resisted the pressure from some in the party, both MPs, but also I think uh, you get to Hugh and Downing Street. And I think the Prime Minister has ultimately been keen to tread quite a careful line where he doesn't want to overreach. So I think from the Prime Minister's perspective, if the left push hard on something, so you saw the Winston Churchill statue, that's when he would kick back. But there are definitely others who would like him to take a more proactive approach. So I think there are hints that that is now coming through. You know, we're talking about culture wars again. If you look at, you know, Oliver Dowden, Gavin Williams and recent tweets, it does feel as though it's tipping a bit more the other way. And I guess it's quite an interesting thing because Boris Johnson was always, particularly when he was London mayor, in conservative terms, quite a small L liberal. And, and it's almost kind of slightly strange territory for him to be getting into. And I guess the tradition is that MPs and politicians always tended to be a bit less socially conservative than you know, a lot of the voters who put them into power. Sonia, this presents a bit of a problem for Labour, you know, amongst with all the many things which are kind of realigning in the country and presenting difficult things for them. On this LBC show, which Keir Starmer did, he was asked whether or not he was woke. And he made the perfectly good point that, you know, 90% of people don't even know what that means. But what can Labour do apart from kind of just treading a bit carefully? Well, I think Labour need to sort of try and reframe the debate. So the danger for Labour is, and I've 
looked quite a lot into attitudes on race and racism and written about it kind of given the events of the last year and what's really interesting is when you look at depth research of public attitudes what it shows is that public attitudes to race are actually much more nuanced than a lot of politicians I think give people credit for so most people think racism is bad think racism is learned think education's got a role in kind of understanding how we combat racism but then on the other hand people think things are always going to get better that racism is about name calling on the street rather than structural racism so what the conservatives are doing quite effectively I think or the conservatives that are playing along with this is creating very divisive narratives around race so this idea that you either kind of give children of colour at school a boost and you, you sort of hold back white working class boys or you do it the other way around now that's absolute rubbish if you look at education research you know, there's nothing to say that by sort of focusing on one sort of discrimination in the system, you you necessarily hold back other groups. So what Labour has to do is not respond, I think, to the way that the Conservatives have framed this divisively, but actually speak a different language to the public that sort of appeals to the fact that we know that Britain on the whole is not a racist country. And most people think that racism is a bad thing. Most people think that, you know, it is harder for people with um, names that don't sound British to get jobs. You know, research shows that. But they don't understand that that is actually structural racism. So I think it's about anti-racist campaigners framing the debate differently and talking a different language to the public, not falling into the culture wars trap. And I guess one of the things that strikes me as interesting about this particular incarnation of the culture wars is that whilst they can often be slightly kind of symbolic episode-based things it seems to me the government is trying to go a bit further with that I mean Katie it looks like they're trying to in a cultural sense as well as you know the argument with the museums and galleries about statues they're also trying to get their people on the boards and trying to almost like politically vet or perhaps even culturally vet the people who get those jobs it feels a bit like a low-level version of like a US president trying to pack the Supreme Court with their people so their, you know, their legacy carries on. Katie, is, is, is there something to that? I think there's definitely, and I would say this is fairly widespread, actually, there is a frustration on the Tory side that they often think, actually, when it comes to these institutions, what former Labour governments did very well was place uh, people close to them in, in these positions, and they think the Tories have been bad at that. I don't think this is um, an agenda that actually is always at the top of Boris Johnson's you know, to-do list. But I think there are others around him who are really pushing it. But I think the flavour and how far it goes is definitely a subject of division in government. And I guess one of the things I definitely need to mention is that we are three journalists discussing the culture war. So the media obviously has a role within this. And I guess it's traditionally been, you know, some elements, some newspapers. I mean, The Guardian does it too. And, and some radio stations get particularly involved in this. But now we had, as of just this weekend, GB News being launched, which is, you know, it's a TV station which has a kind of purpose, partly to debate these kind of contentious things. I mean, I want to ask you both about the role of the media. I mean, Sonia, what do you think the media potentially could be doing differently in in all of this? It does feel that our media debate, to me, has become a lot more polarised over the last kind of two or three years, I would say, and less informative. And so I do sometimes think that our broadcast media, sometimes there's too much emphasis on getting two polarised positions on debating each other. And in like a 10 minute segment, 
you just end up with people shouting at each other <laughs> from positions that are entirely predictable and nobody watching is any the wiser. They just tend to sort of double down in what they already thought. So I do think as the media, we have questions to ask ourselves about how we conduct these debates. And Katie, as someone whose byline appears in all sorts of different places, when you get the email saying, could you write about culture wars, does your, does your heart sink? Or do you think, oh, you know, that's a really easy 600 words. Do you, do you relish it or do you just find it really kind of difficult? I think it depends. Uh, there's often a tendency to say, oh, well, this is all the government and this is an obsession of the right. But actually, I think culture wars as a topic is endlessly covered by both the right and the left. I think that's very true, yes. At the moment, I do think there is a shift where these issues are coming up more and more in terms of statements from the government, in terms of obviously you're talking about questions to Keir Starmer. So I think it is tricky terrain. And I think when you're kind of working out how to cover it, you almost you don't want to sensationalise. You can tell that even politicians find it tricky in the sense that, I mean, how many times has the UK government changed its position on taking the knee when it came to football? Uh, they have not been able to agree their own line you've had ministers saying different things Julian Keegan suggesting that perhaps it's divisive to take the knee then you have the vaccine minister the next day suggesting that it isn't Boris Johnson moving around and I think it shows that even for those who I, I think can see some political gain to talking about it it's uncomfortable and they're not no one's quite sure you know where it stops and where you settle on various things which makes it very unpredictable to write about too. But I also think actually that it is a distraction tactic as well from what's kind of the stuff that they would hope that the public weren't so focused on. For example, the government's handling of the pandemic, the delays to unlocking, you know, what might be going wrong with Brexit and Northern Ireland. So, you know, this stuff is very, very good at dominating the news agenda. This is how we have to understand it. There is an explicit choice being made by politicians to insert themselves here. And, you know, there, there are some quite sort of clear political reasons for that, I think. Well, with England having won their first game, we might be a few more matches in which politicians can choose what side of the fence on taking the knee they want to do it. Sonia, Katie, that was brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Thanks, guys. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland tries to get to the bottom of the oh-so-sticky issue of the filibuster in the United States Senate and why its existence is dividing the Democratic Party. And I can't let you go before introducing The Guardian's new podcast, Comfort Eating, which is hosted by our restaurant critic, Grace Dent. Each week, Grace invites a famous guest to sit down with her and reveal what they really eat when they're home alone. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Martin Kettle, Peter Walker, Sonia Soda and Katie Balls. The producer is Yolene Goffan. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 